You're listening ad-free with Wondery Plus. In poker, there's a move called angle shooting. It's a kind of underhanded way of gaining an advantage. Not quite cheating, more like exploiting gaps in the rules, shooting the angles. But it's highly frowned upon by professional poker players, to say the least. In the poker world, reputation really is everything. Chad Holloway is the executive editor of Poker News, an online publication covering the world of professional poker. He's somebody of high morals, somebody with sportsmanship, would not angle shoot. And it really is a red flag. Holloway is also an accomplished player who happens to have won the game's most prestigious prize. I was fortunate enough to win a World Series of Poker bracelet in 2013. It's uh, kind of equated to winning an NBA championship ring or a Super Bowl ring in the NFL. Is it a physical bracelet that you could wear around like a Super Bowl ring if you were so inclined? Yeah, it is. It's a gold bracelet. Um, Very few people who win them actually wear them. There are some that do. Point is, Holloway knows the ins and outs of angle shooting and how it's perceived among poker players. There's no quicker way to tarnish your reputation to become a villain in the poker world than to become an angle shooter. Angle shooting often involves making a fake motion with your hands. Moves like acting like you're going to put down your cards and fold, or motioning like you've placed a bet when you haven't. That last one is what happened at a World Series of Poker event in 2017 in Las Vegas. The moment that got me interested in angle shooting to begin with. The 2017 World Series of Poker main event is right now. An American player, Matt Glanz, was up against a French Israeli named Samuel Tweel. Sammy, people called him. In a poker news video, Glanz actually reflected the next day on what happened. It was no limit. Sam opened the pot to 4,200. I three bet it to 11,000 with Ace King. And it goes back to him, and I'll show you exactly what he did. Basically, Glanz bets $11,000. Then it's Sammy Tweel's turn to either call the bet, raise it, or fold. He takes his chips, puts them in his fist like this, goes like this, pulls them back. Here, Glanz shows Tweel reaching out his hands, clutching his chips like he's putting all of them into the pot, going all in. But his fingers remain clasped underneath the chips, so they don't actually touch the table. This means Sammy Tweel's bet doesn't count, since for a bet to count, the chips need to be on the table. But Glanz, at the time, doesn't see it. I then call turn over my cards, and then he goes like this, I'm not all in. And I said, what, I said, what the fuck's going on? What, what's going on here? And he said, my chips didn't, didn't touch the felt, which is true. Twila successfully tricked Glanz into turning over his cards, revealing his hand, which gives Twil an unbeatable advantage. When rule officials are called in, they declare that Twil hasn't technically broken the rules. Twil went bust an hour later. Actually, he came back and won 40 grand at the World Series the next year. But angle shooting was firmly attached to the name Sammy Tweel. You just don't do that, especially at this level. In that same poker news video, another pro player, Mike the Mouth Matuso, weighs in on Tweel. This is the same scumbag that fucked Phil Goff on out of three hundred thousand uh, dollars three years ago and stole it from him. So, a year earlier, this same player, Sammy Tweel, had a different incident. This time, with one of the world's most famous and respected poker players, a guy named Phil Galfon. Phil, he had loaned a player, I didn't know at the time, I believe it was $250,000. That player was Tweel. 
it, it seems crazy probably to somebody outside looking in that these large amounts of money are just being thrown about. But it is not uncommon to be sat at a poker table, a player loses all his money and says to somebody else at the table, hey, can you loan me a hundred grand? And the player just says, sure, and tosses them over, you know, a hundred thousand in cash or maybe in chips or whatever it might be. As Phil Galfon would later describe it in a Poker News op-ed, when Tweel got back in the game, Galfon watched him try to angle shoot twice. One of the angle shoots he wrote was your typical shorting a pot trick, putting less money in than he owed and hoping no one noticed. As for the loan, it was supposed to be repaid the next day, didn't happen, excuses were made, red flags appeared, uh, and eventually Galfon felt like he was being you know, strung about a little bit. I'm probably never going to get paid back. And this operator, this player, is, is a bad actor, a bad operator. Mm-hmm. He wanted to share that with the poker world so that uh, it doesn't happen to other people. Galfon wrote that he'd gotten 50 grand back from Tweel, who'd then falsely claimed that that was the whole loan. Galfon wrote that Tweel, quote, eventually got angry and threatened to claim that he lent me 50,000 that night. Galfon said he knew two other players who'd been conned by Tweel. Many people scam for survival, or at least for greed, he wrote. But I believe Sammy cheats and steals purely for sport. So why am I telling you about all this poker world drama? Because after nearly a year of sifting through the Tiger dossier, we stumbled upon a connection that never emerged in the trial. A connection from that unpaid poker debt to the biggest score of the wildest scam of the 21st century. These new revelations we'd found, they complicated the neat and tidy case of the Ladrian affair and muddled up the story that the court and the media had been telling about the world's greatest scammer. Gilbert Shickley, who was sitting in prison, telling anyone who'd listen that this time he was actually innocent. From Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music, I'm Evan Ratliff, and this is the season finale of Persona. Episode 8, Cards on the Table. When I started reporting this story, the idea that Shickley was anything but the mastermind of the Ladrian scam seemed preposterous. I don't think I ever considered it. This wasn't a whodunit story. It was a how-did-he-do-it story. How had one man pioneered a scam that took over the world, costing companies billions of dollars, and then figured out how to do it again, bigger and better? The French judicial system agreed with that story, emphatically. When Shickley appealed his conviction, a judge reaffirmed it. Including his previous Madame G sentence, Shickley would likely spend another decade in prison. He'd be 67. The faux Ladrian scam, the judge noted, is in some way an adaptation of the president's scam, of which Gilbert Shickley had claimed paternity in the media. 
Pretty much everyone we spoke to over the course of our reporting thought justice had been served, with the exception of some of Shickley's defense lawyers, but not even all of them. A few seemed to almost embrace his legend, like, he's my client, but wink, wink, we all kind of know he did it. I think that for Gilbert, the real motivation, okay, maybe it's a little bit money. He loves life, the pleasure, but I think that more than the money is to be the best in this kind of robbery. You might recall that David Olivier Kaminsky represented Shikli way back in the Madame G case. After Shikli was arrested in Ukraine, Kaminsky was the first lawyer he called. But Kaminsky ended up instead representing his co-conspirator, Antony Lazarevich, a.k.a. the fat one. Can you describe the evidence that they had against Gilbert and Anthony from your viewpoint? In the second case, you know, it's like when you do a movie, this is the number two. And the number two is uh, with a part of the number one with also some new elements. And the new elements uh, wasn't only the phone, but the phone plus the video. So Kaminsky wasn't casting doubt on the evidence. He was talking about it like it was all a movie. Madame G was the original, and Ladrien the sequel. Chickley was the star of both. That's how the media saw it, too. It was a good story that way. And I mean, his history, the phones in Ukraine, the mass talk, the ear witnesses, the voice forensics, add it all up, and it sounds so ironclad. But if you press against the big pieces of evidence, that story starts to crumble. Nothing the French police had gathered in the dossier over the two years leading up to Shikli's arrest had actually pointed to him. Just some numbers tracing to Israel, a nation of seven million people. Until 2017, his name wasn't even in the dossier. Then there was the flagrant unreliability of the voice analysis, which Jean-Francois Bonastra took apart in the last episode. It was absolutely subjective and without any uh, scientific reference. There was the fact that the recordings made by Anand Kurach, after he handed over nearly $50 million, were largely in English. Neither of the judges' decisions even noted the fact that Shikli couldn't speak English, certainly not at that level. And if you threw all that evidence out, what did you have? You had Shikli and Lazarevich in Ukraine trying to pull off a new scam with their phones full of suspicious texts. But what did they really show? The way they look in Ukraine, they look like amateurs. When we visited her in her office a few months ago, Carol Olivia Montanot, Lazarevich's appeals attorney, agreed that there was something off about it all. If we succeed before with such amount of money, Then we're not like two losers in Ukraine with no money and a stupid mask that doesn't even look like and cell phones that cost nothing in a shitty hotel. I mean, for me, it was obvious that it was better to admit that and then to present this reality and to say that, okay, if we had taken 20K to Aga Khan and 45 million to Inan Kirak, for sure we're not in Ukraine like that. It made no sense, she was saying. It wasn't just that the Folodrion scammers had made money. It's that they were already organized. They'd tried 150 targets already. They had a mask and a set for their video calls. They knew what they were doing. And if that had all been Shikli, running one of the biggest scams of all time, why were he and Lazarevich operating in Ukraine like a couple of dipshit amateurs? Once you see it that way, it's hard to unsee. The whole thing was so half-assed, unprofessional. These guys had supposedly pulled off a $47 million scam against one of the wealthiest men in Turkey. And now they were bumbling around Ukraine, 
They were calling people to ask for things. Ah, we need this, we need that. Small cell phone, no computer. They didn't even have a computer. How were they going to run the Skype part? Shikli and Lazarevich's blundering obviously wasn't evidence of their innocence. Successful criminals can blunder, but it didn't add up either. And what about those WhatsApp messages about the mask to the Italian named Giovanni? The photos of the mask made to resemble Prince Albert of Monaco. As it turned out, resemble was a stretch. If you look at the photo, it actually bears a closer resemblance to George Costanza. The mask is terrible. It looks like a mask for a kid that, that goes to a, a goûter. I don't know how to say this in English, but uh, when you have a party for a kid, mm-hmm. you know. And they were complaining about this on the phone. Their internet searches in Kyiv are logged in the dossier. There they were, supposedly launching the next iteration of a multi-million dollar scam, Googling Mask Silicone and Mask Silicone Kyiv. Literally, Mask Silicone Kyiv. Like they were going to find a guy down the street to gin up a perfectly lifelike mask of a famous prince. If you step back a bit, it almost seemed like a joke. They certainly didn't look like the brains behind a sophisticated operation. If anything, they look more like copycats. They look more like two guys that maybe wanted to do the same thing as they've heard that have been done by someone else. You also had to wonder, why Ukraine? Even through the trial, the answer remained a mystery. Montano had her own theory. I think, but it's only my opinion that they don't want to commit a crime in Israel. They cannot go back to France, especially Gilbert, because he has a warrant. Mm -hmm. So going to Eastern Europe is easy with his Israeli ID. And I think that's why. It's just an easy place to go. I think, well, I mean, they explain also that they wanted to see a rabbi there and that they left for a few days, which is what they really did. Shikli continued to claim that they'd been there for a pilgrimage to the grave of Rabbi Nachman, a Jewish spiritual leader who died in 1810. But no one really believed that. They went on the pilgrimage? Yeah, Yeah. because they were two losers and they had nothing to do in Ukraine. But honestly, it's true. So, okay, we're here, we're in this (laughs) shitty hotel, what can we do? Uh, Okay, we can go and see this rabbi. There was one person who could help settle this question. His name was Rudy Krieff, a Frenchman who'd been a family friend of Lazarevich. In August of 2017, just before Shikli and Lazarevich were arrested by the Ukrainians, Lazarevich paid for Krieff to fly to Kyiv put him up in a hotel, and then he and Shikli had a meeting with him. Later, when the French police arrested Krieff, he denied knowing anything about the scam. He comes off as a sad sack figure in the dossier. He tells the police that he got scared something was brewing in Ukraine and asked his mother to buy him a ticket home. When he realized who Shikli was, he says, I was very afraid because he's a dangerous person. The French court convicted him anyway, as an accessory. But Kreff was already out of prison when we visited Paris earlier this year. We tried to reach him by phone, but neither he nor his lawyer ever responded. So we decided to knock on his door. Maybe he could unlock the mystery of what Shikli was doing in Ukraine. Where is it? It's right there in the alley. We visited the apartment building listed in the court documents. His name was still in the mailbox. Our producer Chris Knapp and I made our way up to his floor, 
and then tried to locate the apartment. There were eight doors down a dark and narrow hallway. There were no apartment numbers. Okay, so this is the end of the hallway. This is the one that's labeled, but it doesn't say what apartment number it is. It doesn't help us. Oh, they're random. There's they're like just 23, random. 14, 13. It could be yeah. anyone. Yeah. Fuck. We considered knocking on them all, but then Chris remembered that in the dossier, the cops had had a similar problem. He opened his laptop and pulled up the file on Kraft's arrest. It pointed us to the end of the hall. The door opened. I was holding up a microphone. It was Kreff. We'd seen his mugshot in the dossier. He was a small man, maybe 5'6", wiry, wearing only his underwear, boxer briefs. And he wasn't happy to see us. He started yelling instantly like he'd been saving up a certain rage for this particular moment. We couldn't get a word in to ask him if he consented to being recorded, so you won't actually hear him here. But at first, he demanded to know how we found his apartment. Then he ducked back inside, and I thought, maybe he's getting some clothes, and then maybe he's getting a weapon. But it turned out it was just his phone. He wanted to photograph our faces. We said, sure. Somehow, that seemed to take him to a different level of rage. Fuck your mom, he kept yelling over and over. And then suddenly he grabbed Chris by the shirt, like he was lining him up for a punch. Chris, who's a peaceful producer, but also not a man who takes such things lightly, he wasn't happy. And that's me saying, no, 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 trying to stick my non-microphone hand between them. We tried to extricate ourselves. Then Kreff grabbed Chris again from behind, tried to pull him back up the stairs as we were going down, which was confusing since he kept demanding that we leave. Finally, we got down the stairs and out into the street. He seemed upset. I'm going to say that he wasn't happy to see us and that he was unhappy even though we knew his address. We went straight to a nearby bar for drinks. Picked the wrong week to quit smoking cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) While we were there, Kreff called Chris back with his lawyer on the line. The lawyer demanded that we return to Kreff's apartment and show him the court documents we had. It didn't seem like something a lawyer would say. And after a moment's reflection, we realized it probably wasn't his lawyer. Kreff just wanted another shot at us, but this time with backup. I don't blame him, really. We'd surprised him, and he'd reacted as you might expect. We were doing our job as journalists, trying to make every effort to figure out the facts. And he was doing his as a former low-level conspirator in a multi-million dollar scam, just trying to get on with his life. It was all a good reminder that as easy as it was to wander around in the myth of Gilbert Shikli, the dossier was full of real people, with real problems. In any case, we weren't going to get the full story out of Rudy Kreef. But that just sent us back to the same question we couldn't shake. If Gilbert Shikli wasn't actually the person sitting atop the scam, as everyone assumed, then who was? His lawyers had told us that the answer was in the Tiger dossier. So we went back in, looking for it. Remember, after Shikli and Lazarevich arrived in France, the French police bugged their prison cells, hoping they would tell on themselves. Now, any criminal worth his salt knows prison phone calls are monitored. But there was no reason for them to think the cops had them bugged around the clock. That's not usually how things work. It was crazy to discover this in the case, because it's your 
little space of privacy, the last one when you're in jail. Which is important because what the cops heard on those tapes wasn't Shikli and Lazarevich admitting to the Ladrion scam. It was the opposite. One day in 2018, an inmate came around to Shikli's cell to deliver a meal. In the transcript of the recording the police made, the other inmate's name isn't revealed. All you can really tell is that he's probably Jewish from the way he and Shikli talk about religion. And he also knows Lazarevich from the way Shikli immediately asks about him. How long does he want to last like that, Shikli says. He wants to keep his mouth shut. He doesn't want to back down. What do we do? We'll stay here 20 years. Shikli seems to be asking if Lazarevich plans to keep refusing to talk. Like there's something important he's not telling the investigators. I have nothing to do with the 50 million hit, Shikli says. The other inmate asks what he means. On Ladrian, Shikli says. He has nothing to do with Ladrian. And when I say nothing to you, I mean nothing whatsoever. But was it your original idea, the inmate asks him? Listen to me, Shikli says. When they hit that 50 million, what did we do? We wanted to do the same thing. That's all. In other words, they'd seen the Kurach scam, the $50 million score, and decided to copy it. But now, because of what was on the phones, and because of who he was, Shikli says, they're going to stick us with the 50 million case. Do you know who did the 50 million? The other inmate throws out a name, a famous scammer. No, Shikli says. Sammy Tweel. Sammy Tweel, the poker player. The angle shooter. Another day, in the visiting room, Antony Lazarevich is talking to his wife. Again, the police are listening in. I'm not giving up, Lazarevich says. Obviously, you're not giving up, his wife replies. And then Lazarevich tells her something that jumped off the page when I first read it. I'd been searching back through the dossier, through thousands of pages, looking for anything that might support Shikli's claim. The cops know all about Sammy Tweel, Lazarevich tells his wife. They know Shikli and Tweel ran cons together. And then, referring to the Kurach scam, he says, the last big job is Sammy alone. Sammy Tweel grew up in the same Paris neighborhood as Gilbert Shikli, Belleville. These guys knew each other, ran in similar crowds. Sammy had four brothers, Richard, Mike, Harry, and Fabrice. Like Sammy, Fabrice played regularly on the professional poker circuit. And by 2015, when the Ladrian scam started, the Tweels were well known to the French police. Richard, Mike, and Fabrice were actually convicted in another famous fraud called the Carbon Scam. That one was more like a massive theft, a group of French Israelis gaming the CO2 credit markets to run off with tens of millions of dollars. When we went through the police files for Shikli's president scam cases of 2005 and 2006, the Tweels turned up there too. They were known to be running the same advertising scam that Shikli was doing before his first call to Madame G. They weren't suspects in the Madame G case, more like persons of interest. There are several references in the files to the police asking people about them. Do you know the Tweel brothers? An air of menace seems to hang over their every mention. One suspect will say only that a friend told him, quote, the Tweel brothers in Israel, they were crazy. He said he was a bit terrified of them. And now, years later, in another dossier, the Tiger dossier, both Lazarevich and Shikli are pinning the Kurach scam on Sammy Tweel in these secret recordings. It wasn't a secret to the Tweels, though. Fabrice, sitting in prison on the carbon scam charges, had been tipped off that Sammy was being watched. 
The source of the tip was none other than the prison warden. In a huge public scandal, he was later found to have taken thousands of dollars in bribes from prisoners in exchange for perks like mobile phones, more frequent showers, and chocolate croissants. Fabrice was one of the bribers. The whole thing showed up at length in the Tiger dossier. On top of any pastries and shower time Fabrice might have earned, he and the warden had stayed close when Fabrice was out. One day, the warden gave Fabrice a helpful bit of information. He'd heard about the Ladrion investigation from a lawyer, and he passed on some advice. Tell your brother Sammy to, quote, get rid of stuff, he told Fabrice. The police were after him for it. When poker champion Phil Galfon wrote his op-ed about Sammy Tweel and the 200 grand that Tweel scammed him out of, it set off a firestorm in the poker world. All right, there we go. Oh, wow, yeah, okay. Chad Holloway again, editor at Poker News, looking up the readership on the story. It looks like a top 30 performing piece of content for Poker News of all time. Of all time? Of all time, yeah. Wow, that is big. It was, uh, yeah, it, it was quite the bombshell Holloway says he reached out to Tweel for comment at the time. Tweel never replied. But after the article came out, he, or someone posing as him, opened a Twitter account just to respond to Holloway. Do you know me, Chad? He wrote. Then he retweeted a poker blog questioning whether Galfon's op-ed should have been published. Then he went silent. Not long after that, Phil Galfon was asked about the incident on a poker podcast. Howard says Joey in the Poker News article, ask him when he outed the scammer. Please ask him what he thinks about that. Um, I, don't, I thought I said everything that I needed to say in the article. When I contacted Galfon, he very politely told me the same thing. I don't know. I'm not, I, I'm not supposed to talk about that specific uh, situation. But then, about a year after Galfon publicly called Tweel a scammer and a deadbeat, something unexpected happened. I got a follow-up message from Phil saying that uh, it must have done the trick, I guess, because he ultimately did get repaid by, by Sam Tweel. In early 2017, Galfon tweeted, quote, For all of you who are on the edge of your seats, waiting for the conclusion of this year-old story, Sammy has settled up in full. But here's the strange fact that links that settling up to the Ladrion case. The payment Sammy Tweel made, paying off Galfon's loan, happened to be recorded in the Tiger dossier. If you look in the right place, you can find bank statements for accounts controlled by Tweel and his wife. For instance... On April 4th, 2016, an offshore account in the Republic of Georgia, in Tweel's wife's name, paid Phil Galfon $50,000, an installment on Sammy Tweel's debt. No big deal, maybe. Like we've said, lots of people park money offshore. But that's where it gets interesting. The first payment to Galfon? It came right after the Aga Khan was scammed. Then, it happened again. Shortly after the scammers pulled off their $47 million score against Anand Kurach, Tweel paid Phil Galfon another $75,000 installment. This time, the payment came from a shell company in Hong Kong, Imperial Consortium Trading. And Imperial happened to have just received a large injection of money from an account in Poland, an account connected to the Ladrion affair. And over those same weeks, Imperial Consortium Trading's Hong Kong bank transferred $2 million into Tweel's wife's offshore account. All that information is there in the dossier, because after overhearing Shikli and Lazarevich pin the scheme on Sammy Tweel, the French police started investigating him. And in those same files, the investigators also notice how it all seemed to match up. Quote, 
These sudden, significant credits, with no economic justification, in the same period as when Anand Karach was the victim of the fraud, constitutes a disturbing coincidence and an additional clue accusing Sammy Tweel for participating in the fraud. Once they'd gathered that evidence, the cops questioned Tweel, telling him they were considering indicting him in the scam against Karach. In the transcripts of his police interviews, he tells them he makes his living as a professional poker player and a street art dealer. He's living in Dubai, in the Burj Khalifa, one of the most luxurious hotels in the world, where roommates go up to $20,000 a night. When they ask him about his interactions with Gilbert Shikli, he says, yeah, I knew him. They'd played poker once or twice in Tel Aviv, years ago. He's someone who spins a lot of lies, Tweel says. He wasn't wrong about that. As for Lazarevich, Tweel says he was an acquaintance from Belleville, but he knows nothing about the Ladrian scam, the Aga Khan, Anand Kurach, any of it. He says that he was suffering from his brother's reputation, that Lazarevich and Shikli knew they were being monitored and pointed the finger at him. I don't understand what I did to these people, he says, that they put me in files that will tarnish my reputation. Let us note Mr. Tweel gets angry, the questioner says. I'm not angry, Tweel responds. I don't understand. But the police also found holes in his story. For one thing, he didn't make nearly enough money playing poker to justify the sums in his bank accounts. He usually had plenty of money to play, dropping hundreds of thousands of dollars at casinos. But he never won it back. The only gambling mentions in his bank accounts, in fact, were debts. The funds that paid Phil Galfon back, the police said, were at least partly of fraudulent origin. In fact, Sammy Tweel had been on their radar before Shikley was even arrested. Then there was this. One of the phone numbers used in the scam against Kurach, the one used by the English speaker, Bernard Gautier, it didn't trace back to Israel, as the prosecution had claimed everything did. It traced to the UAE, where Tweel lived. The Tweels kept popping up in strange places in the dossier. There was another suspect in the case, a minor figure, who told the police that he'd been beaten up by the Tweel brothers. Later, a judge asked him if he knew who was responsible for the Faux-Ladrian scam. I don't know the architect of the scams, he said. Is it Sammy Tweel? I'd rather go to prison than say his name, the man said. Shickley backed off, too, when questioned about Tweel. He said that the conversations that had been picked up on the prison bugs were, quote, crazy and mythomaniac. But there was one more piece of intriguing evidence that he wasn't just inventing Tweel's involvement. Something I'd missed for months. It was a series of messages on Shikli's rose gold iPhone from the days before his arrest in Ukraine. One of the last people that Shikli had messaged on Facebook was Richard Tweel, Sammy Tweel's brother. Richard was using a different spelling of his name on Facebook. That's why I'd never caught it. The conversation is short, but fraught with a meaning that's hard to parse. When are you coming home, brother? Richard Tweel asked Shikli. Two months, Shikli says. You need me? No, brother, Richard says. Just to hear from you. Sammy Tweel was never indicted in the Ladrian case. By the time the trial came around, Tweel was, as French lawyers say, removed from the file, no longer part of the case. The idea that another person could be the organizer, the mastermind, the designer of these scams, was blocked in court. Stefan Sebag, Shikli's trial attorney. 
It was even mentioned during the judicial investigation, and the justice decided not to prosecute this person. They believed that there were not enough elements to put it in the hearing. So how had Tweel escaped indictment while Shikli hadn't? The answer for both of them was the same, the voice. Like Shikli, according to the dossier, Tweel had initially agreed to give a voice sample to police. And then he hadn't. So they'd been forced to use snippets of wiretaps of him from another case against him. What crimes that case involved, they didn't say. But most of the voice samples came from voicemails he'd left for other people. And on some of them, the police expert admits in the dossier, his words are not intelligible. In the end, the voice analyst managed to cobble together 30 seconds of voice sample to use for Tweel. 30 seconds. According to the experts we talked to, it was laughable. But on the basis of that 30 seconds, the police's expert completely exonerated Tweel from making any of the scam calls. Montano said the certainty of that voice analysis had swayed the court. We are interested in Mr. Tweel because both your client and Gilbert in these secret recordings both named this person as the person who actually did it, according to them. But in the case also, there is a recording of uh, Samuel Twill taken from his cell phone a long time ago. The experts say that it's not Samuel Twill's voice 100%. Hmm. So it's not like, we don't know, maybe it's like, it's not him 100%. But now we've spoken also to outside voice experts who say that the expertise that was used in the trial is... Of course, they're not good, and they're not enough to, to convict Gilbert Chicli. They have been enough for the judges, but I consider that they were not enough. But uh, on the other hand, they are enough to say that Samuel Twill is innocent. It was strange, though. Chicli's failure to give a voice sample was taken by the court as evidence of his guilt, used against him. But for Twill, it wasn't. We wondered if maybe Twill just had a better lawyer. So we looked up who represented him. It was David Olivier Kaminsky, the same attorney who'd represented Shikli for years and then represented his co-conspirator, Antony Lazarevich, in 2020, in that same case. Hold on, I'm just going to walk through that slowly. Kaminsky, a famous criminal defense attorney, was Shikli's lawyer, dating back to 2007. Shikli had then called him from Ukraine, and Kaminsky had represented him for a few months. Then he'd stopped and started representing Lazarevich, the man Shikli was arrested with. On prison surveillance recordings, both Shikli and Lazarevich had implicated a third man, Sammy Tweel. And then Kaminsky also started representing Tweel, while still representing Lazarevich. And of these three defendants, each of whom had at one point in the case had Kaminsky as their lawyer, only one of them got off without charges, Sammy Tweel. To me, this was more than just a convoluted legal situation. The possible conflicts of interest were breathtaking. I asked Montano about it. Well, one thing that I was just wondering, and because the, again, the legal system is a little bit different, but I didn't quite understand. Can you explain to me how that all works? Well, if you talk to Kaminsky, maybe he has the answer. <laughs> well, I just meant from your perspective, I guess. Like in the U.S., let's say you would say, well, you can't do that because then... There would... is a conflict of interest, yes, maybe. that's what I was saying. Well, we, we do, even uh, if we are a small country, we do have this same uh, notion 
uh, that's so is that unusual if your question is if I have been in the same position as uh, David Olivier Kamensky would I have taken those three clients my answer is no but he's an adult a lawyer and he does whatever he wants we weren't the only ones who were perplexed the defendants seemed baffled by it too on the surveillance tapes, Lazarevich is heard speculating that it was in fact Kaminsky who leaked that Ukraine video that got them in so much trouble. This is his own lawyer he's talking about. And he's not so subtly suggesting that Kaminsky was conspiring with Tweel against Shikli. Lazarevich went on. He stays with Gilbert to give everything to Tweel. He doesn't give a damn about Gilbert. The judge investigating the case also seems flummoxed always making sure Lazarevich and Tweel both understand what's going on. Your lawyer, he's also representing the other guy here. That's probably because this almost never happens, and for good reason. The same lawyer representing two criminal defendants introduces the possibility that they might be sandbagging one to save the other. And here's the thing. Remember that prison warden, the one who'd learned inside information about the Ladrian case? The warden who'd then tipped off Fabrice Tweel that his brother Sammy was being watched. The police never seemed to figure out which lawyer had said something to the warden. But take a wild guess who they thought it could be. Kaminsky. When we asked Kaminsky about this, before we realized the full scope of the situation, all he would say was that Tweel had been exonerated. What was the role of Samuel Tweel in the case? The, the justice considers he has no role because they, he, he, the justice put him out of the file. Mm-hmm. He's not in the file. We followed up months later, asking him to put us in touch with his client or answer more questions about Tweel's role in the case. He wrote back only to repeat that Tweel had never been charged. After months of trying to reach Sammy Tweel, he finally responded as we were finishing this episode, after his wife had passed him a message from us. I have no connection to the case, he told our producer Chris Knapp. He then responded to a detailed list of facts in this episode. Everything about the Georgian bank account was legal, he said, and he'd only worked with a Hong Kong company around the sale of some paintings. He said there was no connection between Imperial Consortium Trading and any Polish company involved in the scam. His only financial connection to his brother Richard was some money Richard had loaned him. And he said he'd never been asked for a voice sample by investigators. As for Phil Galfond, he said, I'm a poker player, and loans are common among poker players. We contacted Richard Tweel too, but he never replied. We couldn't get a hold of Fabrice, either. It's possible that Tweel isn't out of the woods. Two defense lawyers did reveal to us that there's still an open part of the Ladrian case. So there will be, and there still is, at least virtually, at least on paper, an investigation of the cash flow. Sabag again. When we asked him whether that investigation might involve Tweel, he clammed up. This is subject to the investigation's secrecy. I don't have to answer those questions. We found references to that case in the Tiger dossier, describing, quote, the existence of a massive and global fraud aimed at laundering undeclared income likely to come from illicit activity. A fraud that, according to the file, 
involved both Sammy and Richard Tweel. When we put this to Sammy Tweel, he said, quote, this investigation doesn't exist. So then, what kind of answers do we have, in the end, about who pulled off the Ladrian scam? About whether and how Shickley was behind it? If I had to go all in on a theory, it would be this one. That the Ladrian scam was the work not of a single person, or few, but of a kind of large, loose network. This network probably included Shickley, at some level. Whether as a planner, or a voice, or a guy lingering around the edges, trying to stay in the game. Sammy Tweel was tied to this network, too, at least the money part of it. And when Gilbert Shickley, the man who invented the president scam, saw someone else pull off the score of a lifetime without him, against Anand Kuraj, he set out on his own again, in Ukraine, and flubbed it. But that the rest of the network, most of it, is still out there, sitting on tens of millions of dollars, trying to figure out how to spend it without getting caught. Again, it's a theory. Here's what I can say with great confidence. The French police decided it was Shickley before they had any evidence, and they never did find enough to prove it. They threw a lot of dust in the air, and when it blew away, there wasn't much left to see. Certainly not enough to send Shickley to prison for a decade. That, in the end, was the point of considering Sammy Tweel. Not to say he did it, but to show that if you stripped away everything but the actual evidence, they had less on Shickley than they did on someone like Tweel and even other suspects in the dossier. But the French justice system had one thing on Shickley that they didn't have on anyone else. His legend. A truly great con is a story. I still believe that. But you can also reverse the formulation. A great story is often a kind of con. The teller unspools it carefully, selectively, to keep you listening. A great story manipulates you by design. Shickley was, if nothing else, a masterful storyteller. In his scams, with the tales he used to extract people's money, and outside of them, with the myth he created about himself. He was too good, really. He'd created a narrative so appealing that he'd trapped himself in it. But at some level, everyone involved was spinning up their own narrative about Shickley's role in the scams and their own. There was the police narrative that only one man was capable of the crime. Shickley is a known name among all the police. He's a genius. There was the Israeli authorities' narrative that French incompetence was to blame for Shickley remaining free to go on scamming for a decade. I'm surprised, but I'm not like dumbfounded. Stupidities happen. There was the prosecutors' and judges' narrative that voice forensics were enough to send a man to prison while other facts faded to the background. La voix, the voice. La clé de the key crime. to the scam is the voice. There were the victims' narratives that Shickley had manipulated them out of their hard-won fortunes. And I see two transfers of more or less 300,000 euros. <laughs> and she cries. Immediately she cries. And then there was my narrative. This one. The one we made for you. Dropped it right into your ears just like a call from Shickley. We created this narrative by whittling down the massive trove of the Tiger dossier, parsing dozens of interviews with lawyers, family members, investigators, experts. 
and by spending months making calls to wealthy French people on a list, hoping they wouldn't hang up on us, just like Schickley'd supposedly done. There were many ways we could have assembled those facts into a story, many true ways even. We chose this one, but it's worth keeping in mind that every story has an architect, whether it's Schickley, a prosecutor, or me. Someone deciding what facts to keep in, what to leave out, which ways to direct your attention, and what to withhold until the very end. For instance, I want to take you back to the story of Madame G, the one I told you at the very beginning. The first victim of Shickley's president scam, how she passed that money through the stall door and then sat on that cafe terrace as the new reality she'd been living in crumbled away. She went to the police, but I never really told you what happened to her after that. We left her behind, moved on to Shickley and all the scams that came next. But Madame G's story didn't end there. L'employeur l'a tout de suite révoqué. The bank she worked for fired her immediately. For Sylvie Novakovic, the lawyer who represented her down through the years, this was the story of Madame G. Elle a perdu tous ses droits. She didn't have any rights after that. She wasn't even able to have unemployment checks. Our translator, Lila Badranath. Madame G didn't just lose her job, Novakovic said. She lost everything. Elle avait une compagne, à l'époque, qui l'a abandonnée. Hmm. Her partner left her? Yeah. Elle est passée de directrice de l'agence postale avec une vraiment une So she went from being the director of a postal agency that was well known uh, in her business to uh, not being able to pay the rent on her now 10 square meters apartment. Elle s'est retrouvée à un moment donné à la rue. And at some point she was homeless. She lost her identity. She was treated for PTSD, anxiety and depression. Every time she came to Novakovic's office to discuss the case, she would become physically ill. After Shikli fled to Israel, he would call his mistress Shirley on her phone during the trial to taunt Madame G. Elle avait perdu confiance en elle. Uh, so that was a lot of trauma. She lost all of her self-confidence. And she lost everything on a personal and financial level. And so at some point she had uh, suicidal thoughts. It took me back to something Lucian, the Romanian graphic designer, had said about what haunted him about the scam he'd gotten involved in. The rich guys at the top never even felt it, he realized. But it's the person down the chain who gets targeted, the person with everything to lose. We saw it in other cases too, like with Thomas, the company owner in the south of France whose scam had been part of the Ladrian case. He'd had to sell his company, but he was fine. His assistant, who'd taken the calls and made the transfers, she wasn't. He'd kept her on, he said. They had a long history. But the new owners knew the story and decided they couldn't trust her. So she's fired. Hmm. She has a lot of difficulties to find other jobs. She finds one, it doesn't last. Another, it doesn't last. She has a very hard life. But now she has a new job. It works good. It's finished. The story is finished. Fortunately for Madame G, her story also didn't end with her homeless and destitute. She eventually clawed her way back, got a job at a different bank. When she got a new job, did they know or did they not know? No, no. C'est une autre banque, mais qu'ils ne l'ont jamais su. So now she works at another bank, but they, they've never been told anything about this case. Hmm. Et de vous à moi, elle n'aurait jamais trouvé d'emploi s'ils l'avaient su. And if they had known, she would never have found a job. That's the reason why we called her Madame G. 
to try not to compound the trauma she'd already been through. But really, Nowakowicz said, she'd prefer that we not tell Shikli's story at all. Finalement, il y a une responsabilité collective. She believes that there's collective responsibility. The fact that everyone treats him like a star, that there was a movie made about him, etc. And if we continue to treat him that way, it's only inciting him and encouraging him to keep doing these kinds of criminal activities. And what about employees? Look, we didn't aim for a layoff. We did not target an employee in the situation. Back in 2015, the AP reporters who interviewed Shikli at his house had asked him how he felt about victims like Madame G. We targeted the presidents of banks or large structures. Now that the employee, unfortunately, has been fired, I am sorry. But again, it was not the employee who had been targeted. We are sorry for them. In other interviews, he claimed that he'd contacted Madame G, offered her hundreds of thousands of dollars for her trouble. I asked Nowakovich about it. And uh, Gilbert Shikli, I think, would say later that he offered her much more money and she said no. So apparently that would, that's not true at all, but she's not surprised that he would lie about this kind of stuff. And so, no, he had no empathy for her, and apparently he, he made fun of her, actually. He talked about her in, like, ridiculous ways. Mm. Yeah, he said that he had fun and that he found it very funny. We came across her real name and number in our reporting. We decided not to call. Of course, the person we wanted to talk to more than anyone about this question, about all of it, was Shikli. As you can imagine, we tried. We tried through Shai, his son. We tried through friends we'd heard had been in touch with him. We tried through his lawyers, of course. His past attorneys said they were no longer in contact with him. His current ones, in France and Israel, were skittish. Shikli had filed a long-shot petition to shorten his sentence. They didn't want him doing anything that could hurt him with a judge. We did finally get Shikli's approval to visit him in prison through one of his lawyers. The prison turned down our request. But as much as I wanted to sit across a table and ask him how he felt about all this, in most cases, we already had the answers. One day I was looking back at those surveillance transcripts from Shikli's cell, the ones where he'd blamed Sammy Tweel. I realized the conversation goes on after that, a seemingly unguarded moment between Shikli and a fellow prisoner he seems to trust. Frankly, I'm old now, Shikli says. When he gets out, he says all he wants to do is go back to Ashdod, build a new house on some land, a shack with a garden and some horses. On the Torah, he swears, that's all. The bullshit has to stop at some point, the other inmate says. I'm tired, Chickley says. The other inmate suggests that what he's suffering now, being prosecuted for the Ladrian scam, is because of what he'd run away from all those years ago, the way he taunted the French, the hubris. I made fun of them a hundred times, Chickley agrees. But the other prisoner goes on, he tells Shikli that his hubris will extend beyond him and hurt more people. You've given the community a bad reputation, and now some kid is going to do a stupid scam. He's going to go before a judge, and the judge is going to give him a stupid sentence. Why? Because the kid is Jewish. Because he has an Israeli passport. Because it's become a cliché. A cliché that Shikli created. 
And anyway, the other inmate says, the whole thing is morally wrong. Whether the victim is the bank or the French state, does the good Lord allow it, he says? No, brother. I know, I know, Shickley says. But we couldn't do it legally. We can't, brother. We didn't have the schooling. We're from Belleville. The problem is that you have this vice, the inmate says, of playing and playing. You don't know how to stop. Yeah, Shickley says. And here, the police transcriber interjects a one-word description of his voice. Gentle. Yeah, Shickley says again. One afternoon in Tel Aviv, a reporter, Shirley Iskari's phone rang. Hello. Hello, Shalom. Hello. Yes, hello. This is a friend of Gilbert Shikli. We'd been trying to reach Shikli, and he'd heard about it, and had this friend call us instead. Oh, Shalom, Shalom, Hi, how are you? I'm fine. I understand you spoke to his son, right? Ken, Ken, in Shai. Yeah, yeah, with Chai. So, I want to tell you something, okay? Mm-hmm. First of all, he has nothing to do with the whole thing. No, of course not. Nothing to do with it. The first thing he wanted us to know was that Shikli's son Chai had nothing to do with the scams. He really couldn't care less about this stuff. This is a man that just wants to be left alone these days because of everything happening. The second thing the friend wanted us to know was that Shikli didn't want anything to do with our reporting. Shikli was struggling in prison, he said. We'd heard this from Shikli's lawyer, too, that he'd lost a lot of his teeth because of an assault he'd suffered in Ukrainian custody, that his wife Shirley was divorcing him. Then there'd been a new video that had leaked on social media, seeming to show Shikli converting to Islam. Some people we talked to, like his son Shai, thought it was all a big joke, Jobert being Jobert. Others thought it was real, that he'd been forced to convert by other prisoners. Or maybe he'd done it to appease a new Muslim girlfriend. Some people in Belleville and in Israel had turned against him because of it. But on the phone, Shikli's friend said he was mainly suffering because he was innocent. They just made this whole thing up. He has nothing to do with it. What do you mean they made it up? I don't get it. The whole thing he has been going through for years now. He didn't do anything. It wasn't him. Plain and simple. Not him. He just wants peace and quiet these days. He did, of course, have an incredible story to tell. Listen, this guy Gilbert, he has done so much for Israel. And your dad? Yeah, I know. No, I don't think you do. Because if you did, you would say. So, I will tell you. Israel, 
I know what he did and did not do. I think he was treated badly by the Israelis and the French. Maybe, he eventually said, he would tell Shikli to contact us, listen to our questions. Okay. I'll speak to him tomorrow okay. evening, okay? okay? He will call you. Okay. And I will be in touch soon, okay? Deal. Send him a hug from me. You are an honest woman. I can tell you are honest, so I will talk to him and then call you. I promise. Okay. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> At one point in the conversation, Shirley stopped him just to ask one thing, just to double check. Hold on, there's something I don't get. Am I speaking to Gilbert right now? No, no. I'm a friend of his. Aha. Okay. Was he, though? It would be so perfectly shickly to call up a reporter and pretend to be someone he's not. A friend who really just thinks we should know how great Shikli is. At least in my ears, it sounds like him. What do you think? Persona is an original series from Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music. The show is written and hosted by me, Evan Ratliff. Our senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Our producer is Sophie Bridges. Our associate producer is Chris Knapp. Production assistance from Natalie Parrott, with additional help on this episode from Emmanuel Hapsis. Project management by Courtney Harrell. Joel Lovell is our editor. Additional reporting by Shirley Ascari and David Iverson. Translation by Leela Badranath, Zhen Ru, and Yoni Milad. Fact-checking by Adeline Sear and Danya Suleiman. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Original music by Carla Kilstead and Jeremy Flower. Additional percussion by Matthias Bossi. Our artwork is by Kiyomi Morrison. Music licensing by Dan Kanishkui. Our theme song is Comment to Dieu Adieu by the legendary Francoise Ardi. Production legal provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. And Fair Use Council provided by Katie Alamohamedy Crown at Donaldson Califf. Special thanks to Natalie Brennan, Ari Saperstein, Keith Romer, Vincent Monnier, Tamar Seabach, Jeff Muskus, Nathan Rippey, Margot Ferran, Paul Luneau, Clay Geneste, Alban Mio, Shira Bramovich, Yuval Denur, Yakov Mermelstein, Sruti Marath, Jessica Brockington, and Samantha Hennig. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our producers are Eliza Mills and Stephanie Wachneen, and our managing producer is Candice Manriquez-Ren. The executive producers at Amazon Music and Wondery are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louie, and Aaron O'Flaherty. Thanks for listening.